Welcome to this podcast of the New York City Bar Association. In this episode, Inside the Policy Work of the New York City Bar Association. City Bar Senior Policy Counsel Maria Salenti, Director of Advocacy Elizabeth Cochenda, and Policy Counsel Mary Margulis Onuma discuss how they work with the association's 150-plus committees to take and advocate positions on a wide range of local, national, and international issues, how they've adapted their work during the pandemic, and some of the issues addressed in recent months. Opinions expressed are those of the speakers and not necessarily of the city bar. Here's Maria Salenti. Hi, everyone. I'm Maria Salenti. I'm the Senior Policy Counsel at the New York City Bar Association. Thank you for joining us. We're going to talk policy today. Uh, I'm going to have my two uh, colleagues and guests introduce themselves so that you know their voices when they're speaking. So why don't you all um, go ahead and say hello. Hi, I'm Elizabeth Kachenda. I'm the Director of Advocacy. And I'm Mary Margulis Onama, Policy Counsel. Well, thank you. Uh, before we get into some of the um, sort of policy work we've been doing, I want to talk a little bit about, I want each of you to talk a little bit about your job, what you do at the City Bar, um, and we'll sort of go from there talk a little bit about our, uh, you know, how we work internally and then some of our external facing work and where we've been, where we're going, that sort of thing. So, Mary, why don't you start with what you do at the City Bar? Sure. So I work with our 150 plus committees um, on their uh, mostly on their written work products. So that might be amicus briefs, um, statements, legislative reports, um, letters to the editor, that sort of thing, um, and uh, work with them pretty much from, you know, their drafting phase all the way through to um, our review internally, um, vetting with other committees if that's appropriate, and ultimately um, review and approval by the city bar president. Great. Thank you. Elizabeth, what do you do? So I mostly pick up where Mary and Maria leave off um, and work on the final product. Um, sometimes during the drafting phase, I'll get involved in terms of helping out, figure out timing, possible, um, you know, sometimes committees don't know what form they want their, their work product to take. So trying to figure out, should it be a letter to a leader, a legislator? Should it be a, a testimony? You know, what form should it take? Um, so things like that, timing, um, who potential targets might be. Um, and any other considerations that they might want to keep in mind. Um, but mostly when I get involved, it's after the report's been finalized, and my job is to really get it out there to as many people as we can, um, trying to get it in the right hands um, at whatever level of government it's intended for, um, and make sure that we're promoting it not just to um, elected leaders and agencies and, and government officials, but also the public. Um, working closely with our communications department to do press releases, social media, things like that, keep our reports alive um, beyond just their initial issuance, and then actually work with committees to directly advocate for positions. Um, so sometimes we have reports that are particularly primed to be advocated for, um, you know, if they're on a piece of legislation or if they're proposing legislation in particular. Um, we do direct advocacy and lobbying work, um, mostly at the city and state level, but we also do some federal work as well. Um, and that's a really great way for committees to kind of take their work products to the next level, next level um, and engage with uh, various stakeholders on the issue that they're working on. 
Great, great. Thank you. So, Mary, who who are these committees? Who who sits on them? How do they come about? Uh, you know, give listeners a sense of sort of who's debating and deliberating and coming up with these policy positions that you that you help them with. Sure. As I mentioned, we have 150 plus committees, and we like to say they range from A to Z. So from animal law to land use planning and zoning, pretty much any legal area you can think of, we have a committee that addresses that subject area. So we have um, securities regulation, international law, we have a number of committees focused on various aspects of criminal law. We have an art law committee. Um, It really runs the gamut. And um, our committee members are drawn from the city bars membership. People apply to be on committees and we have somewhere between 25 to 35 active members on each committee, as well as some affiliate or non-voting members. So some rosters have up to 50 members. And we try to balance the committees so that they're comprised of people with different viewpoints. So um, for example, the labor and employment committee has labor side lawyers and employment side lawyers. And our criminal committees have both prosecutors and defense attorneys. And um, we also have you know, different kinds of lawyers, judges, law students, academics, and lawyers from agencies at all levels of government on our committees. The committees um, try to meet monthly. Um, and of course, over the last 16 months, they've been mostly meeting virtually. Um, and sometimes they have speakers come to address the group. And uh, generally they talk about issues of the day in their areas of practice. Um, The written work product of the committees can take various forms. So that would include comment letters to federal agencies like the SEC or the CFTC um, or other federal or state agencies. Um, They also write legislative reports, amicus briefs, op-eds, written testimony. And um, as we saw during the pandemic, Uh, comment letters to the Office of Court Administration and others on court rules and procedures. Um, And in addition to their work, written work product, committees um, also host events and CLEs, which can help shape the debate and further the dialogue on their policy positions. So once you receive the the written draft work product, what, uh, what what do you do next? All right, so first I look at it and give it a quick review to see what stage the draft is in. Sometimes a committee will send something that's essentially a final draft. They've already vetted it with the other relevant city bar committees. They've solicited their feedback and they've incorporated those comments into the version that they've submitted. Um, Sometimes a committee may submit a draft that's more of a first cut um, and then we'll work with them on substantive revisions. Also, um, if the draft hasn't yet been reviewed by other committees and we see areas that there may be overlap with other committees jurisdiction and expertise, um, we'll vet it with those other committees, um, both for accuracy as well as to ensure that the issues are examined from different viewpoints. Um, Sometimes there are committee conflicts, in which case we try to find areas of common ground and work toward consensus. Um, And at other times committee conflicts can't be resolved. And then in that case, that would go to the city bar president or the city bar board for resolution. Um, And ultimately every city bar report, statement, letter, testimony, op-ed, and amicus brief um, gets reviewed and approved by the city bar president. Um, And while this process may sound cumbersome, 
it's really the foundation of our policy work um, with the goal that uh, every report we issue is in the city bar voice. Um, so that is that every piece of written work product that goes out under the city bar logo is um, credible, informative, and an expert recommendation. And that it's the result of a deliberative process that has examined the issue from different viewpoints and can be relied upon by legislators and policymakers. So that's not to say we don't take a side, um, you know, we often do, but um, we try to explain how and why we got there. Okay, thank you. Shout out to the current City Bar President, Sheila Boston, who is a partner at Arnold and Porter and is fantastic. Um, the president of the City Bar reviews every report, um, unless for some reason she can't, uh, which is quite a task given the volume that we work uh, that we work with in terms of the number of reports that we do. So Elizabeth, why don't you talk a little bit about, um, well, two things, you know, the, the sort of the volume of the reports and how, you know, certain ones get sort of on your list for lobbying and also how you in your advocacy work, um, you know, leverage or, or point to what Mary referred to as sort of the city bar voice as kind of adding to the, adding something to the, to the debate and, and how do you sort of use that in your advocacy? Yeah, so we've really seen zero slowdown since the pandemic in terms of our committee's work. They have been beyond active. I think we've actually seen an uptick of anything else in terms of how much work. So in the current committee year, our committees meet, um, they basically work on like a school calendar. So from September to June is when they're actively meeting. So starting our committee year in September, we've already issued 154 reports this year, um, which is a lot. Um, last The year before that, 2019 into 2020, so really kind of smack dab in the middle of the pandemic, we issued a total of 188 reports. So it's a lot. It's a lot. Um, and we really are pretty much year over year seeing slight upticks in the reports as the committees um, really want to get their voice out more and more on issues. Um, so it's really interesting. You know, when we talk about how we try to um, figure out what we're going to advocate for, it really does come down to our committees. We try to have a grassroots approach. Um, so when we have committees that want to do direct advocacy, that want to actively lobby for a position, we are responsive to that and, and we'll work with them directly. So it's a combination of um, committee involvement, committee engagement, wanting to make sure that members are getting that, um, you know, taking working with their report however they want to. Um, and then also trying to um, be responsive to what's going on in the world. You know, we don't live in a bubble. Um, so we do try to see what is in the discussion um, in terms of what legis the the um, various levels of government are talking about, what different groups are talking about, um, be responsive to things like that. Um, you know, for instance, we saw obviously in the last year a really huge shift after the, the Floyd protests to wanting to work on police reform. Um, and we rose to that challenge because it was clear that that was something that people wanted to be speaking about in response to what was going on around us. Um, so sometimes it's, or, it's organic like that, where it just will kind of bubble up um, from what's going on. Other times it's kind of reading the tea leaves and trying to figure out what, you know, members are interested in in the legislature, um, being responsive to, you know, other organizations that might want to work on an issue. Sometimes we will um, join other groups in work that they are doing in terms of helping um, advocate 
for a position from more of a, a coalition type perspective. I think, you know, the voice of the bar is really important. And I think it lends a lot of credence to our work. Um, you know, we don't hide the fact that this is our process, um, that everything has to be reviewed by the president, even though we'll put a committee name as the author of a position on our reports, it is considered a city bar position. Um, so to be able to tell a legislator or, um, you know, an agency that this position has gone through not just a single committee, which to Mary's point is supposed to reflect a diversity of opinions and, you know, types of practice within that one practice area. Uh, you also have the fact that there are other committees looking at this that might have different views. And it's also really helpful because one of the things that we tell committees when there are maybe some disagreements or they're not sure exactly what approach they want to take is the conversations that they're having in their committee meetings and among committees are the same conversations that various groups are having um, in Albany or in Washington or in the city council. Um, so when we are able to reach consensus, I think it's actually extremely helpful for legislators to know that this has gone through a, a consensus-based approach. Mm -hmm. Great, thank you. Mary, switching focus uh, to the international level, because I know that you work closely with a lot of the international committees. Um, one in particular I was hoping you could talk about is the um, fairly new Business and Human Rights Working Group. Um, you know, one of the things Elizabeth said is we try to respond to issues of the day that clearly is is a big one for um for a long time now and i wonder if you could talk a little bit about that group and you know who they are and what they have um in mind for future work and goals sure so um this is the business and human rights working group which we formed in collaboration with the van center for international justice um which is the city bar's it's a city bar sister organization that provides services and coordinates pro bono initiatives, mainly in the context of international human rights. The working group's membership is drawn from several city bar committees with an interest in the subject. So that includes international law, international human rights, the UN committee, the Council on International Affairs, foreign and comparative law, corporation law, environmental law, International Environmental Law and the In-House Council Committee. Um, this working group has been working largely on promoting and educating the legal community and the broader public on the UN guiding principles and what they mean with respect to corporate responsibility and guiding, guiding businesses in how they run their operations. So of course, we're increasingly a global economy and as corporations spread across the globe in an effort to reach wider audiences um, you know, for their products and to increase their manufacturing abilities and outputs and access to raw materials, there is a real danger that less wealthy and less powerful countries and people can be and are being exploited. So the UN guiding principles underscore the imperative that corporations be aware of how they operate in different countries and what their impact is on the people who live there and um, as well as on the land and um, the resources there. So the working group is promoting an idea that is important as we go forward, um, which is really that law functions best when and yields the most effective outcomes when we take a cross disciplinary view of how things work. Um, and as you may know, lawyers tend to work in silos sort of in their bubble of expertise. Um, but as businesses are expanding and 
as we're seeing with climate change and COVID, you know, sometimes the things that impact our lives and the planet aren't defined or easily contained by state or national boundaries. Um, and so like the idea that we live on this earth together and sometimes we need to work together to make things happen. So, so that's a broad theme that the Business and Human Rights Working Group um, has been promoting and they continue to promote um, and educate uh, uh, people on the um, UN guiding principles, you know, using this sort of framework. So in fact, um, I just learned uh, that it is the 10 year anniversary of the UN guiding principles. Um, so they came into being in 2011. And the working group, along with the ABA and IBA, just hosted um, a day-long event last month um, recognizing the UNGP plus 10. Um, so the event um, examined where the UNGPs have been and where they're going. And also this past June, the working group hosted a two-part series on human rights and the environment. So clearly the working group has been very busy um, over the last year. Uh, despite the pandemic and despite doing everything remotely. Um, and as they look toward next year, they plan to continue their work promoting the UNGPs and collaborating with other bar associations in promoting corporate responsibility and human rights. That's great. Uh, thank you. Let's, let's flip to Albany. Um, speaking of working together or not working together, um, let's, let's focus in on the past session, Elizabeth, and Sort of what it was like uh, during COVID um, in the, I guess, the second year of both houses being under democratic control um, and sort of what you saw, what you worked on, what you were proudest of um, in, in this past in this past session, which which just ended. Sure. So, uh, you know, to say it was a weird year would be obviously an understatement. Um, we really saw the legislature. Um, trying to work under very different circumstances than they're used to. They're used to being up in Albany together, kind of um, figuring this all out with with everybody around them also trying to help them figure it out. Um, and this year, um, even though we had legislators in Albany, a lot of them were still remote. So we had this sort of hybrid situation. And then obviously advocates um, and members of the public were not able to interact um in person with any legislators. So even though they held some hearings, um, which were, you know, through Zoom and open to uh, people to participate in, it made it a lot harder to get in front of folks and to really get your position out there. Um, you were relying a lot on email and social media and trying to do these kind of Zoom meetings, which became harder and harder to schedule because I think of a combination of probably Zoom fatigue and the fact that we are all, you know, it's so easy to schedule these. I think legislators were really being over, overwhelmed in some ways by all of their various responsibilities because now timing didn't matter, right? You didn't have to travel anywhere. You could just hop on your computer and talk to whoever wanted to talk to you. Um, so we really just shifted a lot of our strategies. Um, but in a lot of ways this year, despite all of that, it did feel a little bit more normal. They did, you know, do a, a normal quote unquote session where they ran from January through June. Um, they did the budget, um, finishing it on, relatively on time in early April. Um, one of the things I think that was different this year is the governor really took a step back from a lot of the legislative work. Um, he focused almost exclusively on COVID um, for a variety of reasons, um, but that really impacted why, you know, how the legislature worked. Legislature worked. Um, they were able to do a lot more 
together um, and not necessarily have the quote unquote three men in a room that you typically see in Albany, although now obviously it would be two men and a woman. Um, so it was an interesting year. A lot got done, um, which I think is really what I'm most proud of. The fact that despite the volume of work, despite the fact that we were doing this all remote, um, not able to really have the face-to-face with um, folks that we used to have. We were still able to get, you know, I think at this point over 20 bills to pass both houses that the city bar supported, which is amazing. A number of those bills were issues that we've worked on for, in some cases, a a decade or more. Um, You know, something like the Consumer Credit Fairness Act, is something that our civil court and consumer affairs committees have worked on for almost, I think, as long as I've been at the bar. So over over a decade, um, that bill finally passed both houses after years of negotiation and work. Um, we saw medical, I mean, not medical, <laughs> marijuana. We already did medical marijuana. <laughs> marijuana was legalized this year, um, which is something our Drugs and the Law Committee has been engaged on at various levels, I think, for two decades at this point. Um, we saw some further criminal justice reform, which is exciting, especially after building on some of the reforms that were done last year. So the Less is More Act, which is a parole reform bill passed at the end of session, um, which is something that a number of our criminal committees have worked on. Um, we also, and one of the things that I'm very proud of with our committees is that, you know, some of these issues that don't necessarily get, those are all big headline kind of grabbing bills that you would see in the media a lot. Um, our committees also work on a lot of issues that don't get that attention, but are so important to kind of the administration of justice and, and how just our systems work. So the ability for, you know, our, our nonprofit organizations committee or our commercial and uniform state laws committee to speak on issues and get bills passed um, is really important because um, it shows where, you know, kind of flipping back to what we were talking about earlier about the voice of the bar and where we could be impactful. I think that's where we have a huge impact because we have the lawyers that are actually doing this work every day in their practice and the legislature appreciates the opinion of those practitioners um, when they're making policy in some of these areas. So overall, it was a really, really great year. And again, like I said, I, you know, they were back up to well over 800 bills passed both houses this year. So getting back to somewhat normal Albany activity. Thank you. Mary, um, so we have a new president, um, and I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how um, our committees, uh, you know, express their their points of view to an incoming administration. Um, they hopes and dreams, et cetera, uh, and sort of how that process works and what we hope to, you know, accomplish by by speaking on federal issues. Yeah, so um, amidst all the um, activity that our that our committees were able to, to do this past year, we were also quite pleased that um, they were able to put together transition memos to the Biden-Harris administration on a whole host of issues. Um, we issued 12 transition memos from various committees, um, the Animal Law Committee, the Rule of Law Task Force, Bioethical Issues Committee, Communications and Media Law Committee, Corrections and Community Reentry, Emerging Companies and Venture Capital, Energy Law, Immigration, LGBTQ Rights, Pro Bono and Legal Services, 
Technology, Cyber and Privacy and the UN Committee. Um, so uh, we spoke on, on a lot of uh, in a lot of areas. And I think um, committees were were energized to, um, you know, to, to be speaking to a new administration, hopefully, um, you know, sort of giving recommendations about, you know, issues that should be um, addressed and um, forward looking uh, policy recommendations um, for the for the new administration. So um, we were really pleased to be able to to issue those reports. And in terms of uh, the prior administration, you referenced how we spoke out on uh, the rule of law. How, how did what was the vehicle for doing that? And how did how did you make sure that or we make sure that um, that it, that it didn't turn into sort of a partisan or political uh, effort as opposed to, you know, on behalf of a nonpartisan uh, bar association, an effort that was focused on sort of rule of law and, and legal rules? Um, yes. Yeah, so our the main vehicles for this was our rule of law is and was our rule of law task force, um, which was very active um, over the over the you know COVID period. Um, during the last you know year to fifteen months, they issued seventeen reports, um, and uh, it is it is difficult. You know, you don't want things to be partisan or you know be viewed as partisan. And um, the way we did that is really to focus on on you know, the, the legal issues. Um, and, uh, you know, for example, we um, wrote a letter to President Trump opposing the pardon of Roger Stone. Um, we wrote a statement condemning President Trump's pardons of accused and convicted war criminals. You know, and, and really just going back to, you know, the way things should be done, which is in a deliberative way through a process where there's vetting um, and that, that um, you know, we would be able to say the same thing, whether it was that administration or, you know, a new administration that we wouldn't we don't want presidents um, and, or our federal government to operate in this way. Um, and so if we could look at it with that lens, which is that um, we don't want to be directing it, you know, an ad, ad hominem attack, but really to make sure that it's um, a, a point about maintaining the rule of law and our democratic institutions that could be applied you know, to just generally to to our um, to future administrations. I think that was um, a way to make sure that we were speaking in the city bar voice. So thank you. So uh, what is on the horizon that you're really excited about um, in Albany or at the city council uh, for the next year and the next session? I mean, I think there's a lot. Um, obviously, at the city level, we're going through another transformative phase, um, both coming out of the pandemic, but also because we have a new mayor. Um, so we uh, not sure when this is going to air, but we had a primary as of this point last week. Um, uh, the results are still unknown on the Democratic side, but, um, you know, it's going to be an election in November. We'll have a new mayor, um, a lot of new city council members and comptroller. Um so it will be really, really interesting to see what a new administration does. Um, we found that committees were really engaged the last time around 
and also it was just a, whenever there's a new administration to what Mary was saying, there's kind of just a new opportunity to kind of speak on issues and and have a fresh voice and, and think creatively about what kind of policy positions you want to take. So I'm always really interested to see what the committees are going to bring to a new administration, what issues they think are things that uh, the mayor and other um, city elected should be list, uh, taking into account and putting on their agenda. Um, and also just seeing how that that new government is formed. So I think that will be a really great way for committees to engage and hopefully will open up some interesting um, ways for us to um, interact with the new administration. Um, in Albany, I think it will be great to get back in person for a lot of things. You know, as of now, the Capitol is going to be reopened. I think you will see in the in the fall more um, getting together and actually convening, which is exciting, um, you know, we so often partner with other groups and organizations and to do all that remote has been is challenging. But actually, I would say one of the things I'm very proud of over the last year is the fact that we've been able to maintain that and if, if not grow it in certain situations. So there are a couple of issues that we've been working on that have really been collaborative. Um, so, for instance, we had a um, what we've called our kind of Wi-Fi for homeless campaign that grew out of a, a report issued by the City Bar Justice Center um, and has really grown into this um, campaign that we've worked with a number of organizations, um, most closely probably with um, Vocal New York, which does direct services for um, people experiencing homelessness. And it's been great to see how something like that has really grown from what was initially, you know, fairly focused on New York City and the need to get Wi-Fi and Internet capable devices into homeless shelters, which the Justice Center um, had found were completely lacking. Um, you know, shelter residents are almost entirely reliant on their own devices if they are able to get their own devices, paying for those themselves um, and having little to no Internet in shelter. Um, so what started as a campaign to really focus on New York City and get the de Blasio administration to make sure that in their efforts to expand broadband, that they were also including shelters, that has now grown to a statewide issue because um, obviously the pandemic made it very clear that this is an issue across the board and without Internet, you know, we really can't do anything. Um, so now we're supportive of state legislation that would in- ensure that um, Internet access is available in any shelter. Um, so we're going to be doing a lot of work around that in the coming months. Um, we've been working closely with our criminal justice groups on a number of their um, legislative proposals, um, which are really interesting and I think exciting because the committee, um, you know, mostly led by our mass incarceration task forces issued kind of this large report looking forward in terms of how, where, where do we go from here in terms of dealing with mass incarceration? Um, and there are a wide range of recommendations in there, um, a number of policy proposals. So we're going to be doing a lot of work in terms of reaching out to related stakeholders, trying to get buy-in on some of our proposals, um, and hopefully getting the legislature to introduce and move those bills. Um, so those are always my favorites when we have kind of proposals that grew out of our committee that we can work on directly and then also work with other organizations on um, because it just expands our voice and expands our thinking on things, too, which is really helpful hearing from other stakeholders and making sure we're taking into account as many viewpoints as we can. So there's a lot of exciting stuff. I think um, it feels hopeful, which is exciting. Excellent. Thank you. Mary, how about you? What's uh, what are you looking forward to? What do you what's uh in your pipeline of work for next year that you're really excited about? 
Um, I'm, I feel like, uh, I, I think that's, this is sort of the theme of this podcast, but, um, our committees have been, you know, energized. Maybe they've always been active, but it seems like they've become even more energized over the last year or two, just sort of seeing, I mean, maybe, uh, just having a shift in our work balance or maybe it's that everyone is just working all the time i'm not really sure um but it seems like uh our committees are are just so active even ones that hadn't been so um productive in the past has have suddenly sort of come out um with with you know uh things they want to advocate for um and i think that there's going to be a lot more collaboration um, from from inception on a lot of um, issues, I think the BHR working group has, is sort of a model for for that. Um, and we've we've always encouraged our committees to talk to each other and to 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 um, reach out to each other early on areas of overlapping um, interests. But I think that um, they've seen now, I guess maybe through the beauty of and ease of Zoom, I'm not sure, or just um, you, you know maybe they're just seeing that it's more effective, or maybe the global pandemic has really um hammered home the, the fact that that we need to sort of um look you know that the, that we need to look beyond the limits of our of of our day to day practice but I, I do see um a lot more collaboration in our future um, among our committees any particular issues or topics you're very excited about as elizabeth mentioned there are a number of criminal justice reform issues that we're working on and i'm excited about um, I, I also wanted to give a, a shout out to our compliance committee, which has been really active and prolific, especially in the last 16 months. So they identified a specific issue and need in their pra practice area, and then they went about addressing it in a systematic way. They issued a report um, last February or two February ago, February 2020, um, called Chief Compliance Officer Liability in the Financial Sector. Um, and that report discusses the real as well as perceived danger that chief compliance officers face of SEC enforcement actions brought against them in their personal capacities for conduct relating to their compliance related duties under the federal securities laws. And the report recommends the need for more guidance or a framework for evaluating whether to bring such cases. The committee then followed this up with another report this past June, so June, 2021, which offers a set of non-binding factors for the SEC to consider in creating such a framework. Um, and then after that, they engaged with leading news outlets like the Wall Street Journal and Law 360 to promote their work and garner attention from the industry and the broader public. And their proposal has actually gotten the attention of the SEC commissioner and others and will hopefully you know, lead to further discussions and potentially getting the SEC to adopt some or all of this, um, the recommendations for the framework that they set forth in their report. So this is an example of an industry specific problem that may not have captured the public's attention at the outset, but that the committee really brought to life through their reports. They're helping to educate the legal community and the broader public and they've helped to make people see why this is a problem and why we should care. And then they offered solutions to help address the problem they've identified and brought to light. So it's just a great example of the kind of policy work and real contributions our committees can make by offering the expertise of practitioners in a particular practice area who've given careful thought to an issue and through the deliberative process that is the hallmark of our committee work, 
um, offered workable solutions in a report that government agencies and other policymakers can rely on. Um, and I'm really delighted that our committees are really working together and reaching beyond their direct cohorts and even more so than before, looking to take advantage of and benefit from the differing expertise of lawyers and other committees. So for example, our federal courts committee took the lead on our report in support of the George Floyd Justice in Policing Act um, with robust collaboration and input from other committees, including the Civil Rights Committee and the Criminal Cluster Committees. And um, I envision that type of collaboration continuing to come from our committees in the future. And um, I wonder, Mary, if part of what you're, you're getting at in terms of, you know, why this increased engagement, this increased activity, you know, I, I wonder if it's, it's sort of an acknowledgement um, that a heck of a lot needs to change. So, you know, and, it, and being silent is not an option. So whatever, um, you know, whether it's through committee work at the bar or some other way, I think lawyers um, are, uh, you know, perhaps more willing, more vocal, or, or there, there has been some change, I agree, uh, that, that has um, energized and sort of really made, um, made it an, an imperative that if you are going to be um, in this world, and if you're going to be in this world as a lawyer and uphold, you know, fundamental principles of fairness and um, due process and rule of law and equity, uh, that you that that should be carried out in all aspects of your work. Um, I think our committees really provide an outlet for lawyers. I mean, our, our members who are at legal services organizations astound me with their commitment. Um, that they, that they work, you know, all day long. They see an injustice. They pour it into, you know, policy work to try to change the law for the betterment of their clients. Um, is really extraordinary. They are, uh, um, I, I, this last year and a half, I, I, I would talk to, um, committee chairs, committee members, all hours. I mean, everybody was just working all the time. Um, and they're just so incredibly committed. We have, Lots of new energy, new lawyers uh, who are coming into their fields um, and saying, we got to fix it. We have to change this. Like, you know, it's um, it's an imperative. And I think I, I'm so happy that we can provide some outlet for that. It does sometimes, as you all know, um, you know, sometimes our process and trying to build consensus, I always say, you know, if you're going to write this memo, let's not just advocate, let's also educate and persuade, educate and persuade. Let's have this be a document that a member of the public or a city bar member who's maybe not as steeped in the issues as you are, right, who isn't as familiar as you are, could read this and sort of say, wow, you know, I didn't know this. Or this really, you know, helps me understand this. Or I agree. Or maybe I disagree. But at least it's, you know, another person thinking about it. Um so to my own question of what I'm looking forward to um, for the for this year, um, we have been, you know, longtime supporters of the right to counsel for um, low income tenants in New York City Housing Court. A lot of our work over the last year or two through the through our committees who focus on sort of New York City's high volume courts, um, housing court, family court, civil court. 
you know, those committees have really driven an agenda focused on addressing, you know, the racial inequities, leveling the playing field. Uh, and in particular, in eviction cases, we supported New York City's passage in 2017 of the right to counsel law, um, which provides a lawyer to any tenant who is facing eviction uh, who can't afford one. And it, it's a game changer. The New York City agency that handles it is the Office of Civil Justice. They put out annual reports and um, they, it, the statistics are astounding. Since rights council went into effect, the success of tenants being able to stay in their home, uh, I think the number is 86% of represented tenants um, end up staying in their home and not getting evicted. That is work that I look forward to uh, continuing with. It's, it's driven primarily by our task force on the civil right to counsel. Um, so that is my answer to my own question. Um, Lightning round, yes or no? Elizabeth, best job you ever had? Oh, absolutely. Mary? <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. And your former, <laughs> your former employers are listening, and I don't care. All right. So anything else that um, you feel like we should talk about that I haven't asked about or uh, that's on your mind? Um, now's your time. I would just say that I think, you know, especially in going through this exercise of chatting about all of this, it's really it's it's helpful to say, be able to say to members that I think, you know, all of this energy that people are having and wanting to be engaged, that we are seeing progress and we are seeing results. And I think sometimes it's harder to to always see that. Um, but again, I think even in the pandemic, to be able to feel like we were having our voice heard and see specific instances where I, you know, we know that the bar's voice was being taken into account as policymakers were making their decisions, I think is something I hope members know that we really pride ourselves on and that we really do make sure that whatever they're saying is kind of getting into people's hands. I was really proud of what the committees were able to accomplish over an extremely challenging time for everybody for a many number of reasons. Um, and it was it was really wonderful to be a part of. Yeah, and I would just uh, echo what Elizabeth says and there and also just, you know, thank our committees for their work, um, their you know steadfast support for, you know, fairness and equality and the rule of law and, you know, um, educating all of us um, and keeping us, you know, honest and keeping us on the on the right path, you know, towards towards a more just and fair society. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I can't wait to get back in the office, get back to um, a session where I can uh, to uh, join Elizabeth once or twice up to up to Albany. Um, and I'm looking looking forward to it. So thank you. And we will hopefully do this again. Uh, maybe we'll do it again before Albany starts up again in January. And we could Sounds we good. could chat about what's what's happening. All right. Thank you. Bye. Thanks. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Thank you for listening to this New York City Bar Association podcast. Opinions expressed are those of the speakers and not necessarily of the City Bar. Find more City Bar podcasts and program audio on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher, or on our website at nycbar.org/podcasts. This podcast was produced by Eric Friedman and Alex Cardaris.